0: Chapter Thirteen of the Green Overcoat by Hilaire Belloc. This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, in which the subliminal consciousness gives itself away. The work of the Sunday had tired Professor Higginson. He did not know that glory could weary man so much. He rose very late upon the Monday morning. He rose certainly without ambition, and almost without fear. He was dead beat. By the time he had breakfasted, it was noon. He had no class on Monday. In the early afternoon, he was due at the Council of the University. He remembered the agenda, more or less. He had to talk particularly about those Saturday lectures. He hated them. But first of all, he must ring up his colleague, Garden, who was with him in the matter. Garden had the telephone. Sensible man. But Garden wouldn't allow his number in the book. It was... it was... three-seven-something. Wait a minute. Professor Higginson remembered a scrap of paper with a memorandum. That had the number. He had put it down last Monday on a scrap of paper after the Senate meeting for just that occasion, to ring up Garden before the Council. He had a good memory. He prided himself on that, He clearly remembered jotting the number down on a scrap of university paper in the Senate room. It was the meeting before he went to Perkins, just before his troubles began. Professor Higginson felt for that scrap of paper intuitively in the watch pocket of his waistcoat. He could carry such things there for days. It was not in the watch pocket of his waistcoat. He searched in all the pockets of the suit he was wearing one puts things which one is in the habit of carrying instinctively into a pocket and one often does not remember when one did it especially if one is given to lapses of the primary consciousness the subliminal gumbobs, by a process only too familiar to the less fortunate members of the professional classes he fingered carefully every edge of the pocket lining until he found a large hole whereat he as carefully explored all the vague emptiness of the lining beneath and as he explored it he began to worry for there was nothing there then the professor of subliminal psychology suddenly remembered he had taken it out when he dressed that evening for perkins he had put it on to the dressing-table he remembered the white paper on the white cloth and he remembered telling himself not to forget it He had put it into the pocket, the waistcoat pocket, of his one evening suit. He went through that one suit very thoroughly. He found nothing. He thought he might have dropped it when he last changed. He stretched upon the floor, and lighting matches with infinite difficulty, he peered under the bed and under the wardrobe, examining every inch of the worn Brussels carpet. Not a scrap of paper appeared. Then, suddenly, he got a touch of nausea. It was borne in upon him more and more certainly that the last time he had carried that memorandum and worn that suit was at perkins party and the days that followed and the nights that bit of paper must have dropped during one of his struggles or one of his athletic feats in the accursed house that gave the matter a very new importance if that ill-omened scrap were still in the empty house worse still supposing someone had found it it was a clue professor higginson lost no time he took the tram and when he reached the end of it with infinite precautions of looking to right and left pretended to go down side lanes lingering at gates he managed at last to comfort himself with the assurance that no one watched him as indeed no one did every inch was for him alive with spies and. He exaggerated the importance of his movements, for he was a Don. An hour or so after he had left the town, he saw the neglected shrubs, the rotting gate, the beweeded gravel path, and, standing up gaunt and terrible before him, the accursed house within its wasted grounds. He went stealthily to the door. It was locked. Still gazing over his shoulder with nervous precaution, he made an effort to find some postern, But the high wall was blind everywhere, and the courtyard at the back was enclosed upon all sides. With a confused but terrible recollection of some tag which tells us that no man falls at once to the lowest depths of turpitude, and with a sigh for the relic of his honor, he tried one of the great front windows. It was fast. Then Lucifer, once again inspired that unhappy man, with cunning beyond his own. He whipped out a pocket knife, opened the thin blade, inserted it in the crack of the sash, and began to tamper, yes, to tamper with the catch. He felt it giving, as he pushed gently, and with infinite care, lest any sound should betray him, when his heart suddenly stopped beating, and his blood ran dead cold at the sound of a voice just behind him delivering this summons. What you're at? he dropped the knife and leapt round a sturdy fellow short and thick-set clothed in old bargy trousers and a pea-jacket and with the face of labor which the police call villainous in their reports was watching him unmoved what you're at repeated the badly-shaven lips i-i was making an experiment said professor higginson at random yer was said the. thick-set man and spat and now you're cut professor higginson was dignified my good man he said none of that said the good man advancing his face in an ugly fashion i'll let you know i'm the caretaker book it if there was a copper in this saharia desert i'd put him on ye for a twofer now a twofer is an insignificant cigar of which two are sold for a penny But though Professor Higginson did not know this, he understood the general drift of the remark, and he slowly began to edge away. "'I've a mind,' said the pea-jacketed one, following him growling to the gate, "'to tell Mr. Kirby.' "'Mr. Who?' said Professor Higginson eagerly. "'Mr. Kirby,' repeated the man sullenly, "'it's his job, this house is.' Professor Higginson felt in his trouser pocket and produced a florin. The caretaker took it though it only confirmed his suspicions is that the name of the agent for this house could i get an order from him i want to look for i mean i want to get inside yes you do said the man then that's the name of mr kirby and if ye've sense ye'll get to his orifices before me it was a plain hint but professor higginson was not grateful He was considering what advantage this information was to him, and as he slowly considered it, he at last clearly grasped that advantage. He would be back at that house within three hours, back with the key and an order to view, and it would go hard with him if he did not find that dangerous scrap of paper. He had not wasted his florin. Thank you, he said rapidly, and was gone. He reached the tram again before it was mid-afternoon. Once in the town he looked up a directory in a shop found kirby and blake's direction and made his way at once to that office mr kirby had come in just an hour before he had sat drawing caricatures on blotting paper with stubs of pencils or gazing at the ceiling he had written private letters with his own hand and addressed to people who had no known connection with the firm and he seemed to have attached himself thus to his business premises during that one exceptional afternoon, for the advantage of seclusion and of the telephone more than of anything else. Moreover, he had asked peevishly once or twice whether such-and-such a one had rung him up or called for him. When, therefore, Professor Higginson came into the office and asked whether he could see Mr. Kirby, said the clerk to him, Certainly, sir, and showed him into a room where bound copies of Punch and a graphic three years old, also a list of bankrupts beguiled the leisure of clients as they waited their turn will you send up your card added the clerk innocently no worried and feebled the professor he had no card say it is professor higginson and that he wants to see mr kirby most particularly is mr kirby expecting you continued the clerk how should i know said mr higginson half savagely and the mystified young man was more mystified still when on giving the name to his employer that employer jumped up and beamed as though he had been left a legacy or had heard of a dear friend's return from the dead oh show him up he said merrily show him up show him up at once and the chief of that great business went halfway to the door to meet his visitor He took him warmly by both hands, as he bade him be seated. He asked in the most concerned way about his present state of health after the terrible adventure which was now the talk of thousands. He hoped that the heat of the room, with its blazing fire, was not inimical to the professor's convalescence. Professor Higginson was rather curt for such a genial host. "'I won't detain you, Mr. Kirby,' he said. "'It is very good of you to have given me a moment or two of your valuable time," he thought a minute. He was not good at plots, or rather he had had to construct too many lately in too short a time. At last he began tentatively. "'Perhaps you know, Mr. Kirby. I am afraid it is widely known—in fact, you do know, for you have just told me as much—that I—that, in fact, I have had an er, unfortunate—er—lapse.' Mr. Kirby nodded sympathetically pray do not insist my dear professor he murmured most touching most interesting now with your expert knowledge of the phenomena of consciousness professor higginson interrupted the point is mr kirby that knowing you to be in touch with the what shall i say the residence business yes said mr kirby with a polite inflection well the fact is blurted out the philosopher My case presents a point of the highest possible interest, the highest possible scientific interest in which you might help me. It's about a house. And here the professor stopped dead. Mr. Kirby watched him with crossed legs, joined fingertips, and a very hierarchical expression. Professor Higginson continued. I have an instinct, purely subliminal, mind you, Mr. Kirby nodded, but never took his eyes off the professor's face. And the professor's eyes on their side never left the floor. Purely subliminal, but a strong instinct that during those days I was-I saw-no, I mean, I was spiritually present in a house, a sort of-well, house. Mr. Kirby nodded again. I-I-I ha- had a sort of dream. Wait a moment, professor, said Mr. Kirby respectfully we must get all this quite clear. At first I understand that your complete loss of memory involved a breach in the continuity of consciousness—a blank, as it were. I read all the reports, of course—his tone was profoundly reverent—and I will not trespass upon sacred things. But at the first there was a blank, was there not? Professor Higginson put on his lecturing tone. We are using technical terms, my dear sir— he said in a somewhat superior manner indeed highly technical terms primary consciousness i certainly lost i think i may go so far as to say that i am unaware of any action of secondary consciousness mr kirby still nodded gravely following every word but subliminal consciousness is a very different matter that my dear sir continued the professor smiling awkwardly is my own department, as it were. Now, the subliminal consciousness is particularly active in dreams, and I certainly did have a very vivid dream. But if your memory was wrong, said Mr. Kirby, with a calculated, puzzled look, I mean, if your memory failed about it. The professor shook his head impatiently. You don't understand, he said. Please let us be clear. There's no question of memory at all not at all not at all said mr kirby politely only a dream it was a vision a high vision said the philosopher i recollect some things clearly a sort of studio roof a big sort of skylight window i remember that now of course i never can have been in such a house continued professor higginson it's one of the first laws of subliminal consciousness that impressions are conveyed from one center to another transversely, as it were, and not either directly or in the ordinary line from a superior to an inferior plane. To put it conversationally, not from above to below, nor from below to above, Hmm? of course, said Mr. Kirby, naturally quite clear. The whole theory of telepathy depends upon that, went on Professor Higginson, glancing up cautiously at the lawyer and dropping his eyes again it could depend on nothing else said mr kirby gracefully well you see said the psychologist i wasn't in the house that's quite certain i had and have no objective knowledge of the house every psychologist of repute will bear evidence to that it's the mere abc of the science your reputation said mr kirby would weigh more than that of any colleague and the professor was gratified you certainly understand went on mr higginson i never was in that house yet i am certain such a house exists and well for reasons that are very private it is really of interest to me to discover where it may be for though my science assures me that i had no sort of physical connection with it during that extraordinary experience yet i am confident that its connections inhabitants or owners will give me a clue to what is now the chief interest of my life, and I may add, I hope without boasting, now one of the chief subjects before Scientific Europe. In the interest of science, I should see that house. I should visit it, soon, indeed, today. I wonder if you can help me. The house looked north he continued abruptly, shutting his eyes and groping with his hands to add a wizard effect to the jerky sentences. There was a drive up to it with laurel bushes, a rather weedy drive. There were four stone steps to the door, I remember those steps well, and oh, there was a lower ground floor room with one window looking on to a back yard. If I can find that house and have an order from its owner to visit it. I shall be profoundly grateful. I thought you might help me. I've got it all down, said Mr. Kirby, scribbling hurriedly, and I will certainly find it for you. The cause of science, Professor Higginson, is a sacred cause. If you can, oh, if you can get me an order now, today, burst out the professor, opening his eyes suddenly, and cutting short in his desperation, I, I, well, I should like to look over that house it would be of the highest possible scientific interest can you he added nervously and as though he was in a hurry to catch a train or something of that sort can you let me have the keys now my dear sir said mr kirby looking up gently my dear sir i really cannot yet be certain what house it may be nor whether our firm are the agents for it nor even whether it's to let, though I think it may be one I have in my mind. He glanced at his notes again. Oh, yes, your firm are the agents, said the professor eagerly, and then added suddenly, appreciating that he was giving himself away. I remember receiving with extraordinary vividness during that curious vision the supernatural impress that your firm were the agents. Mr. Kirby said nothing, and looked nothing, and the professor eagerly went on to cover his tracks. "'You must know that in these purely subliminal phenomena there is a marvellous sense of the atmosphere, of, er, connotations of the locality, the dream locality.' "'Well,' began Mr. Kirby slowly, "'of course we could not refuse you, Professor Higginson, in a matter of such high scientific importance.' "'We might have to get the leave of the owner, but in the normal course of things we could let you look it over, only, you see,' he went on with a puzzled expression, "'you really haven't told me enough to fix me yet as to what house it can be. We have so many to remember,' he mused. "'It is a peculiar sort of house—unfinished, I think you said,' he continued, looking at his notes, "'except on the top floor where there was a studio. Now, professor and here he looked suddenly at his visitor. Can't you recollect any other details, some sort of faint impression?' "'No,' said Professor Higginson, timidly. "'You must remember the circumstances were extraordinarily—for instance,' said Mr. Kirby, imperturbably, "'have you any recollection of where the bed was? Was it in a sort of little dark room beyond the studio?' it is an extraordinary thing he continued pulling up his sock as he said it that one cannot keep one's sock up one's leg without those horrible little garters which i for one will not wear now you suggest it said professor higginson slowly and with something of the feeling that a mule may have when it feels the drag on the rope now you suggest it i have a recollection of something of the sort and by the way I seem also to remember a delicious heavenly music. "'Ah,' said Mr. Kirby, and he gazed at a point on the carpet, about eleven feet away. "'Wonderful thing, music. Only seven notes, and see what a lot you can get out of them. I will smoke a cigar, if you don't mind.' And he lit one. "'Now, were there three chairs in the room? And do you remember anything of a rope?' said Mr. Kirby." "'I'm not quite sure about the rope,' lied Professor Higginson, pausing between every word. "'But the chairs—yes, I think I did see chairs—wooden chairs.' "'And was the skylight broken?' "'No.' "'Yes, possibly—very probably,' floundered the professor. "'Then I've got it,' said Mr. Kirby briskly. "'I've spotted it. You were quite right when you said—' You'd never been there in the flesh, At least I don't think you ever can have been there. It isn't in this town at all. It isn't in England. It's a place my firm looks after in the Hebrides. Wonderful old place, you know, deserted. A man's it was. Now, the history of that house, he continued volubly, when the professor checked him. Not at all, not at all, he said angrily. I tell you, it is somewhere close by here in ormiston my dear sir said mr kirby opening wide eyes how can you know that a duplicate of the house i am thinking of i've told you already snapped higginson in these visions one has connotations of atmosphere and so on well said mr kirby after that outburst shaking his head slowly from side to side then i'm of no use not at all i do know by chance That place in the Hebrides saw it only last year. Doing it to oblige a cousin would have been most interesting, most interesting, if it had been that. Don't you think it could be that? They're full of second sight in those parts. No, said Professor Higginson, rising with determination and in some anger. No, I do not think it could be that. Well, then, said Mr. Kirby, hopelessly, I don't see how I can help you. Don't you think two connotations may have got mixed up? No, I don't, said the professor shortly, more and more possessed of the feeling that things were going wrong with him. I don't think so. It's impossible. These things have their laws, sir, just as nature has. I mean ordinary nature, common nature, what we er call natural laws. Mr. Kirby nodded agreeably. I don't think went on professor higginson that i ought to take up any more of your time oh but i should particularly like to hear more said mr kirby with enthusiasm i'm afraid it's of no use said professor higginson and he made to go out he was actually at the door when mr kirby added professor higginson i've half promised some friends to ask you to dine in london after your lecture it was a great liberty but they knew i lived in ormiston i wonder whether i might presume shall i drop you a line it's the rockingham i might tell you something then i might find out yes said professor higginson with no enthusiasm but he badly wanted to see that house and search it for that haunting scrap of paper and he didn't want to lose touch with the order to view yes by all means you see added mr kirby apologetically by the time you come to dine with me in london on wednesday i might be able to suggest a lot of things an almost unfurnished downstairs room with a big deal table in it and oaken chairs uncarpeted and all that sort of things that you would expect in a house of that kind yes said professor higginson flabbergasted well well said mr Kirby more cheerfully and shaking him cordially by the hand i won't keep you next wednesday in town i'll write and he sauntered back into his room the great psychologist slowly paced the street outside then despair gave him relief and he went home to bed end of chapter thirteen